on this series called All Things New, out of the weirdest book in the Bible, the strangest book in the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, right? And we talked last week uh, about the first three chapters of the book of Revelation and really a, a kind of a major theme that's coming out there in those three chapters. And it's really more of a presentation of Jesus that we should be focusing on. Remember we talked about the two extremes of the book of Revelation. You have your code breakers and they say, oh yes, I figured out who the Antichrist is. I know what the, the 666 is and I know when Jesus is coming back and I know what the writers of the apocalypse are and the bulls and the seals and the trumpets and the two witnesses and I figured it all out, I've cracked the code. And then there's the other extreme who says, no, we're not even going to read this strange book. Well, what do all those things have to do with my life anyway? Somewhere in the middle there um, is, is real truth and something that makes a difference for our own personal lives. But we have to go back in time a little bit and realize, all right, what did the people who first read this strange book, uh, what did it mean to them? And remember, we talked about, well, they're living in a time of persecution. It's either under Nero or it's under Domitian. Uh, I tend to favor Domitian, the emperor who reigned in the 90s. Uh, and he was no friend of Christianity at all. He wanted to be worshipped as Lord and God. And anyone who didn't, uh, he would persecute. Even if it was written under Nero, Nero, no friend of Christians, set a fire to the city of Rome, decided to blame the Christians for it. Uh, so it's a time of persecution. It's a time where John, the writer, is, is in exile uh, on the island of Patmos. Nicholas, are you here? Yeah, Nicholas is up there. And he's been to Patmos. He was there last year uh, of Greek descent. So maybe you can talk to him about what Patmos looked like and all of that. Uh, but I'm told it's quite a beautiful place. And you can actually visit those seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. Or the places, at least the churches, are long gone. Um, but anyway, this, we, we brought it into context, remember? And we talked about how Jesus is powerful, Jesus is personal, and this is kind of the main theme. He knows us, but the question is, do we know him? And today we're going to go through the, the next three chapters. I like to do it in chunks, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So we'll be here till about 2 o'clock. And you can, you can watch the movie after for free. I worked out a deal with the theater. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So like I told you last week, when you read the book of Revelation, it's a letter. It's not only a letter. It's an apocalypse. It's not only apocalypse. It's a prophecy. So it's a, it's a bizarre hybrid of three different kinds of literature. There's really nothing like it. Uh, it, it John identifies himself as a writer, which is unique for that, that genre of apocalypse. Um, he tells us that the, the, the keep the book open, don't seal it up for a later day. That's unique for an apocalypse. So it's, it's a strange, strange all-dressed pizza. But what you want to do when you're dealing with a piece of literature like this, and there really isn't anything like it, but you want to read it in big chunks. And I just keep telling you this over and over again, resist the temptation to break codes. Your code-breaking efforts are wonderful, but I'll tell you what they are. They're speculation. So you may think that you know who the Antichrist is. You may think you can crack the 666. You know, people have been trying to do that for 150 years. Uh, when credit cards came out, people said it was the number of the beast. 
when churches started doing online giving <laughs> or giving with these, these gadgets and foyers, people said, oh, now the church is gone for the number of the beast. Here comes the microchip in the hand. Here it comes in the forehead. Look, 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 it's the Antichrist. And look, it's Barack Obama. And look, it's Vladimir Putin. And God forbid, maybe it's Donald Trump. And you know, who knows, it could be Justin Trudeau. You know, and Please resist the temptation to do this. This book is not written to 21st century, uh, to a 21st century North American audience. Uh, it's for us, but it's written to an audience that's 2,000 years old in ancient Turkey. So you've got to understand what it meant for them first before you apply it to your own lives. Again, it's God's word to them directly but for all of us, all right? So Revelation chapters uh, uh, 4, 5, and 6. Um, and uh, these, are, these are when it starts to get really, really interesting. Uh, so I'm just going to flip over there, and you can, you can go there in your phone. Don't worry, it's not the number of the beast. You, you can go there in your paper Bible. Uh, but here we have... Some big lessons that can be learned just by looking at the chapters in big chunks. And that's why I say read it in big chunks. Try to go at least two, three chapters at a time. And if you're really bold, you're really daring, sit down in your air condition this week, you know, in your, in your house or somewhere. Sit down and read all 22 chapters. I bet you, you could read it in about an hour, all 22 chapters, if you resist the temptation to break codes. There's three words that I want you to learn about today that kind of cover each chapter one at a time. We use them in church circles all the time, but we, we rarely get the, uh, a grasp on what they truly mean. The first word is worship. The second word is worthy. And the third word is wrath. Worthy, worship, and wrath. So first big lesson from Revelation the fourth chapter, this is a lesson, a powerful lesson, the whole chapter on the idea of worship. So what you have going on here is that John has this vision. After this, I looked and there before me, a door was standing open in heaven and the voice I'd first heard, you remember that voice from the previous chapters, it's the voice of Jesus coming to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And he talks about what he saw. And he puts it in terms of like this kind of supernatural, bizarre vision. I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne. Just try and picture this, okay? I'm going to read it. Try and imagine it in your mind. I, I scoured through the internet to see if anybody had enough creativity to draw this or you know, use, a, use digital technology to try and portray this. All of the images are fairly blah. They look really, you know, not too impressive. There's nothing really good on the internet to try and depict what this is. Uh, again, I'm waiting for somebody, some movie maker, to use all of the fancy technology to make a CGI movie of this. I think it would scare people uh, out of their minds. But anyway, this is what he sees. There before me was a throne in heaven, and someone was sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, 
Uh, these are ancient, ancient, precious stones. You know, those words don't mean the same thing to us today. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders, sort of like spiritual leaders of the day. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads from the from the throne came flashes of lightning, it's plural there, rumblings and peals of thunder. It must be quite the individual on this throne. Uh, before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There, uh, these, and he tells us these are the seven spirits of God, which could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, we're not sure. And before the throne, uh, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. And listen to this part. In the center around the throne, there's four living creatures. So you've got your throne. You've got one who's seated on it. There's really no description specifically given of what he specifically looks like, only a little bit. You've got these 24 other thrones around and these guys with these gold crowns and the way that they're dressed and lightning and thunder and all of this. But around the center of it, you've got these four living creatures. And they're covered with eyes, covered with them in the front and in the back. You say, what is this crazy? I mean, this person writes like he's on narcotics, right? So his eyes all over the place, in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Wow. So each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who sits on the throne, so presumably the one who sits on the throne is God himself. Whenever they give honor and thanks to him, uh, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship, there's the word, him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Say, what does that have to do with my life? And good question. Uh, but if you were in the first century and you were that audience and you read that or heard that, in those circumstances, it would give you a great, great encouragement. Why? What the, the lesson to learn about worship there, first and foremost, is it transcends time and it transcends circumstance. The idea of worshiping God goes beyond time and goes beyond whatever your circumstance. How do I know that? Well, this, this vision that this man has, this throne and these bizarre creatures with the wings and the eyes and, you know, the man, the ox, the eagle, the, this is nothing new. This is something that the first, that, that the hearers of this or the readers of this would immediately have clued into from the ancient past. So you actually see this, this vision uh, previously in the Bible a long, long time ago. 
And again, when you get your code-breaking mentality off, you, you realize this. And uh, the first time that you see this, this image is way back in the book of, of Isaiah. Uh, and this is, you know, 7th century B.C. So you're talking 700 years, more than 700 years perhaps before uh, John claims to have seen what he sees. And Isaiah is writing to an audience completely different, uh, completely different time, completely different set of circumstances. So he's writing pre-Assyrian invasion. We've talked about that in this church and pre-Babylonian invasion. So those are two big, huge key events in Old Testament history, right? You have the nation split and the civil war that takes place in 922. Then the Assyrians are going to come and invade in 722, and then the Babylonians in 586. You don't have to remember any of those dates. But this is, this is before those two major invasions. And Isaiah is going to warn people that this is coming. Isaiah is going to talk to people about the Messiah who would come. Uh, but look what Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6. I have it on the screen for you. So in the year that King Uzziah died, and again, this is, you know, 7th century, 8th century BC, I forget the exact date, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphs, that's an old word for angels translated into English, each with six wings. Oh, that's similar to Revelation, right? And with two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another the same, the same phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory as a vision of God himself surrounded by these strange creatures with wings not much detail is given at the sound of their voices the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke and isaiah has this experience where he's confronted with his own sin uh, the sin of his own nation and he says woe to me i'm i'm unclean and my eyes have seen god himself my eyes have seen the lord almighty and he's called at that point into his ministry, and God calls him and touches him and, and puts him there. And this is, this is an obvious reference to that in the book of Revelation. John claims to have seen the same thing. Another place where you see something very similar is in Ezekiel's vision. And this is a guy who wrote uh, when the Babylonian invasion had taken place. He's writing to the exiles. He is an exile. He's been carted off to Babylon He's going to write to the remnant who's left there in Judah, but he's also going to write to the people who are in Babylon. And you see in Ezekiel chapter 1 and uh, verses 5 to 14, very bizarre. I mean, you really want to see something strange, read something strange, read Ezekiel. Like this guy sees things that some people say he's seeing UFOs. Okay, I don't think that's what he saw, but that's how bizarre some of the things are that he, that he sees in his visions and so on. But look what he says in verses 5 to 14. Uh, verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. And he tells you when he's writing and who the king is at the time and where he is. And look what he sees. I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud. 
and uh, with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. At the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was, look, was what looked like four living creatures. Oh, sounds like revelation. In appearance, their form was like that of a man. And each of them had four faces and four wings. Not six, but you'll see it could be six later on. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf. And it gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another and so on. And look what he sees in detail. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had the face of a man on the right side, uh, the face of a lion. And on the other side, the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. Same four images that we see in Revelation. Such were their faces, their wings were spread out upward, and so on. And he goes on and on into this description of what he sees. Why does this make any difference for your life? How does this teach you about worship? Well, whatever the circumstance, uh, what Isaiah saw, 7th century B.C., what Ezekiel saw, 6th century B.C., you've got invasions going on, you've got people suffering, you've got sin all over the land. Then you fast forward to the book of Revelation, the church is being persecuted by the Roman uh, government and by the emperor, and yet God stays the same. God is the same. He's presented essentially the same way. The vision that these three men have is very similar. You see details in some that you don't see in others, but it's very similar. And it would have been very obvious to the people in the book of Revelation that, wow, there's a statement being made here that the, that the God who was there in Ezekiel's day, the God who was there in Isaiah's day, he's the same God that's here in our day. And the persecution that we're going through and the suffering that we're going through Hey, there is one beyond that who sits on a throne, and he's surrounded, you know, by, by creatures with eyes everywhere, and he is worshipped no matter what happens, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we talk about the idea that God never changes, that's supposed to be a comfort to you, because your life is always going to change. There's going to be change, change, change. Whether you like it or not, it's going to change. And some of it you can try and stop, but you will change. Uh, you're changing right now in this room. You are aging as I speak. You're aging, and you don't even realize that you're aging. The, the, your body is aging even while you're sitting there enjoying the comfort of your seat. It's changing. And there's not one thing you can do to stop it. I mean, you can buy all the, the drugs you want. You can make yourself look pretty. You can do Botox and whatever you want to do. But you're not going to stop that process of change. Uh, but there is one who never changes. When you, and even when you face that grave, he never changes. He's still the one that is worshipped in that throne room that these three men saw. He is immutable God. That's a fancy word that means he's unchanging. The Bible uses words like rock to describe him. That means he's reliable. I don't know if you've ever been let down by anybody. Any of you ever been disappointed, let down, cheated on, lied to, stabbed in the back, etc., etc.? 
Well, God will never do that to you. He will never do that to you. He's not going to run out on you. He never, never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the way that he's being presented in chapter 4 of Revelation. It was nothing new to the people who heard it back then. Us, we look at it and we say, what's wrong with this writer? Um, and even up till chapter 4, he's already quoted different things from the Old Testament. He's been in Daniel, he's been in the Psalms, he's been in Zechariah, and he's making references to it in what he's writing, okay? So, so chapter 4, that's the lesson on worship. I assure you that God never changes. He never does. And you can come to him, and he's not going to pull a trick on you. He's not going to deceive you. Chapter 5, you see the vision continues. And you see that this one who's seated on the throne, God himself, again, is not really much description being given as to what he actually looks like. But he's depicted as having a, a hand, at least one of them. <laughs> and it says in chapter 5, verse 1, that he's holding a scroll in his hand. And the scroll has got these seven seals on it. These would have been, the picture would have been these wax seals that they used back then. And when you wanted to seal up something, you would, you would melt the wax and you'd put it on the whatever it is you wanted to close. And you'd usually put a seal on it. You know, a king would put his signet ring in it and put his emblem in it like a logo. And so the only way to, to get to what was inside was to break the seal. And you would know right away someone's tampered with it because the seal is broken. And here you have a scroll, and it's got seven seals on it. And there's an angel who, who cries out there in Revelation 5 and 2 and says, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And there's a, there's a, a, a comment there. No one, no one is worthy, and that's the, the, the next lesson to learn here. No one is worthy to crack open the scroll. Uh, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth could open it. And John, the writer, he says he wept and he wept and he wept because nobody was worthy to open it and look to see what was inside. And one of these 24 elders says, do not weep to, to John. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There's actually an old, really bad movie back when Demi Moore was a star. Any of you remember Demi Moore? Wow, are you young. There's only a few of you who remember Demi. You must know who Demi Moore was, is. I don't know where she is now. But Demi Moore is an old, really bad movie. I think it's actually called The Seventh Seal or The Seventh Something or Other. And it actually tries to depict this. And if I remember correctly, she's the one who's opening the seven, seven seals. Horrible movie, but I might just I might just rewatch it just to see how bad it is uh, and what it does to this text. In any case, uh, this one who's going to open this scroll is guess who? Any of you have any idea? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who's triumphed, the root of David. Any clues? It's probably Jesus who's being talked about here. 
So we used to sing songs like that. We used to sing, the Lion of Judah will break every chain. Remember that in Sunday school? Right? And, and so th this, is, this is probably who that's talking about. And verse 9, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Standing. Wow. So God is seated on the throne, but this lamb, looking as if it had been slain, if you can picture the image, is standing in the center of the throne, encircled by those four living creatures with all those eyes, those weird eyes, and the elders, those 24 elders. And this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, lots of use of the number seven, which are all seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God in some translations uh, sent out into all the earth. Again, some commentators say this could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. He came and took the scroll, the lamb did, from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. So not before the one who is seated on the throne, but before the lamb. And each one has a harp and golden bowls of incense, which the writer tells us are the prayers of the saints. Some of you who pray, you think your prayers don't do anything. Here, the prayers of the saints are kind of collected and being used here. And they sang a new song. And listen to the song they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll. So this is the word worthy again. And to open its seals because you were slain. So this is Jesus. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. Remember we sang about amazing grace from every tribe and language and people and nation, not just Jewish people, but every tribe, nation and language. There's 20, 25 nations represented even in the crowd of 45, 50 people this morning, uh, just in, in this side. Um, because you were slain, you purchased men for God for, from every tribe, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 is an astronomical number. And they encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders, and with a loud voice they said, look at it again, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We even have a chorus like that nowadays. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is the Lord Jesus who's being talked about here. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all of them singing to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the lamb, Jesus Christ, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And everyone says, amen and worshiped. What's going on here? Jesus is the only one who can open that scroll. And you'll see what happens when he opens it in chapter 6. But he's the only one worthy to do that because he in his essence is God, in essence, in nature, and he is being worshipped clearly as God on equal authority, on equal power with God himself, the one who sits on the throne. Wow, 
that's really, really significant for the people who read it and significant for us today. Why? You must understand, friends, that Jesus gives us only really three options in the Bible. If you just read the Gospels and you read the depiction of Jesus and you just take them at face value and you ask yourself the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, let's read the Gospels. Basically, you've got three choices. And it was C.S. Lewis who put this, put this down in, in, in his work in you know, the 20th century. Jesus is either a, a, a demonic liar because the claims that he is making and the things that he is saying, if he's wrong in what he's saying, then he is a liar, but he is the liar of the worst possible kind because he's deceiving millions and millions and millions of people. So he's either a liar or he is a nutcase or as C.S. Lewis said, a lunatic. He's completely out of his mind. He should be locked up in a, in, a, in a psych ward because he's making claims that if he's incorrect, he's completely out of his mind. He's an utter fruitcake, okay, to use a crass term. So he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's exactly who he says he is, the Lord himself and God himself. He has not left us another option. So in other words, you can't say, well, Jesus is a really good teacher, or Jesus is a really good example, or Jesus is a really good rabbi. You know, he's like uh, Gandhi, or he's like Buddha, or whoever. He's a great example. He loved people. He accepted people. And, you know, we should, we should be like him. We should follow the golden rule, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that's all well and good. But Jesus is presented as God in the Bible. And if you do not acknowledge this, and if you say, well, you know, that, 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 that's not really important to me. Oh, yes, it is. Because if he is God, then you and I have a chance to be saved. Because it means that on that cross 2,000 years ago, you have God on it. You don't just have a man. You don't just have a good teacher. You don't just have an example. You don't even have an angel. You have God himself, the one who wrote the rule book, is hanging there on a cross for your sin and mine. And if that is the case, my friends, then you and I have a chance to be saved because he paid the ultimate price for us with his own blood that was shed. Do you understand the difference? So if he's not God on that cross then it may as well be just like the Old Testament where you took an animal and you slayed the animal and you're temporarily forgiven of your sin. You have to do it over and over and over again. Your life isn't changed. There's no change that takes place in the heart. But if he's God on that cross, then you and I have a chance to, to say, like John Newton did, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And this is the way that he's being presented here. He is on equal authority on the same playing field with the one who sits on the throne, and he's the only one who can open that seal. He is worthy, and because he is God, it means we have the opportunity to be saved today. And now when he opens it, everything starts changing. So you think Revelation was, you know, palpable for the first five chapters, 
Now you start to get into chapter 6 and so on. And when you move from chapter 6 to chapter 19, I mean, it is just wild what you see that starts to happen. So in chapter 6, we see that this lamb, uh, which is a representation of Jesus, he's going to start opening these seals. He's not Demi Moore. <laughs> so I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, chapter 6, verse 1. And then I heard one of the four living creatures, you know, the ones with all the eyes, uh, say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. You're going to see four horses here. White horse, it held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And the lamb opened a second seal. And I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. And its rider was given power, note the given power, to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. And then the lamb opened a third seal. And the third living creature said, come. And I looked and there before me was a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales scales that weigh things in his hand and then i heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine if you know the measurements back then that would have been wow you got a you got a time of great famine there if a quart of wheat uh <laughs> A day's wages buys you only a quart of wheat. You've got a big famine happening there. Uh, verse 7, the lamb opened the fourth seal, and the fourth living creature said, Come, and I looked, and before me was a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power, note the given power, over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth we'll pause there for a moment there is a question that is the most common question and objection about christianity the most common it's always been the most common and uh, you 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 probably know what it is it goes something like this if god is then why such and such so if God is all-powerful, as you Christians claim, and he's, he can do anything, and you know, you sing your songs about his power and his might and all the things and the things that God can do, and there's no obstacles for God. God can raise dead people, you claim. If, if God can do anything, and God is all-powerful, and God is also holy and loving and kind to people, then why in the world is the world the way that it is? Why doesn't your God do something about it and stop it from happening? Why does he allow all of these things to happen on this world that he allegedly created when you claim that he's all-powerful on the one hand and all-loving on the other? What is the answer? And that is an amazing question. There is only one answer, and it's the book of Revelation. 
if, if God doesn't come back to clean up the mess, then we have a right to charge him and to accuse him of having a corrupt character. We have a right to. And a lot of non-Christians do this, and they attack God's character, and much of the reason is they don't read the book, especially the last one in the Bible. But without the book of Revelation, without the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back, without the idea that God himself is going to clean up the mess, that God is going to bring in a final judgment on evil and all of the consequences of evil that ravage this planet that he has made, then you have a huge, huge problem. How can you worship a God who is not going to bring a solution to that problem? And this is why I argue that the church today, we've lost sight of the idea of the second coming of Christ. It has become a relic that we put on a shelf, and it's for the nerds like me and the, and the, and the Bible scholars to, to think about and to pontificate about. No, no, no. This is real stuff. Look at the world around you. Do you th what, what do you think of it? You think it's nice and pretty, and this is, oh, well, it's great. Everything's great. No, it's a world that's filled with pain. It's a world that's filled with un injustice and, and, and violence and famine and, and people dying all over the place. It's a world that's at war all the time. And it seems to be getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It seems like the temperature is just constantly being turned up all the time. And we look around and we say, Where's, when's it going to end? When's it going to change? When is God going to do something about what's going on? And the answer is the book of Revelation. The answer is he will, but he will do so in, in time. And we have to wait until it happens. And here you see in chapter 6, it is starting to happen. This is the beginning, when we see chapter 6, of the wrath, a word that we used to use in preaching 100 years ago maybe. <laughs> no one will dare use it today. Uh, but this is the beginning of the wrath of God poured out on an evil world. This is what we start to see here. And it's going to continue for a dozen chapters. Now, here's the, here's the broad picture that we usually give. And we'll, we'll wrap up in just a few minutes. Usually, the way we explain it is this way. We say, well, uh, we, and we chart it, you know, and we say, well, there's going to be a series of events that's going to come in the future. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of preaching about the rapture in churches of our general flavor and spice. Uh, it's not often talked about today. But the idea of the rapture is this, is this idea that that there will be wrath that's going to come on planet Earth. The justice of God is going to come upon it. And what, what Jesus will do is he will remove the church from the world before this happens. This concept is called the rapture. It's from, uh, from a, a, a series of, of uh, words in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and, and the idea is there. This is debated uh, there are some people who don't believe in it. There's some that do. It's a subject of debate at times. Uh, again, in churches of our spice and flavor, we believe in this. I certainly do. But it's the idea overall that God will 
judge this world. And in the rapture, the church is removed from the world before it happens. If there's no rapture, it still happens. And then there's this period of judgment that will take place. Yeah, here's, here's, the, here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. They think when they think about this period of judgment, which is typically taught as being seven years, uh, that it's, it's somehow, you know, the devil that's inflicting all of this on planet Earth. And the reality is it is not. It is all governed under the sovereignty of God. And here, in particular, under the sovereignty of this lamb, which is Jesus who's opening, taking the seals off of this scroll. So it is the justice and the wrath of God that is coming. And there'll be this period of seven years. It's typically taught as being seven years. It's called the tribulation, uh, where there's all of this stuff that happens on planet Earth, and it's all pretty well bad. Uh, and then at the end of the tribulation, it is stopped by the actual second coming of Jesus himself physically to bring in a period of peace on the world for a thousand years, which is called the millennium. Why do I tell you all this? Because it, it may be a lot of detail, but the point is that Jesus is coming back. The point is that God is obligated to clean up the mess because he cannot be all powerful on one hand and holy and just on the other and loving on the other without bringing the present state of affairs to a conclusion without redeeming the whole thing, without cleaning up the whole thing. Now, here's, here's uh, a mistake that a lot of us make. We say, well, when we think about the judgment of God and we think about the wrath of God, we say to ourselves, ah, well, you know, that's that. See, look at this country over here. That's why they have earthquakes. That's why they have famines. It's because of they worship idols over in this country. And see, it's God judging them. I remember when 9-11 happened, there were people who said, you see, God is judging the United States because of its materialism and so on. And God's trying to get the attention of people. You see this country over here, this one over here, it's God judging them for their sin. Folks, you need to be very, very careful with that type of application. Let me tell you why. Uh, Canada should be first on the list. If God is judging that way, and if God is doing that kind of, well, I'll deal with this country this way, this way, this way, we should, we should be in real trouble. <laughs> we're, we're amongst one of the most pagan nations on the planet. Uh, we're we're in, in many ways exemplary in our paganism, in our materialism, in our lack of morality. In many ways, we're exemplary. Uh, so why isn't there all kinds of problems here in Canada? Like, we got it pretty good over here in Canada. No, when, when God judges, he's going to judge in a global, global sense. He's going to pour it out in a global, global sense, not just individually. And, and also, if you want to look for the wrath of God today and understand what it means today in your present day, uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about how God gives people over. And that's what it looks like today in the present, present, present. So people go and they, they want this, this you know, particular thing and this particular lifestyle, this particular whatever, this particular sin. And it gets to a point where God says, go and have it. Go and have it. I won't hold you back anymore. Go, go, go and have it. He gave them over to, and there's a litany of things there in Romans chapter 1. And that's a, that's a frightening place to be when God no longer kind of holds you back. And he says, go, 
You want to experience it? Go. And he doesn't restrain. But this time here in Revelation chapter 6, this is the future time where the wrath of God is unleashed on an unbelieving, unjust, evil, evil world. And it is, I mean, you're going to read a dozen chapters of one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. You say, well, that's not very comforting. You're ending, you're ending the message this way? <laughs> like, that's not very helpful, not very comforting. Oh, yes, it is. If you're back there in the first century and you're being persecuted and you're living in the time that they're living in, you're saying, you know what? I'm glad someone is worthy to open that scroll. I'm glad it's finally going to come to an end and evil. And all of these things that we see in this world are finally going to be dealt with once and for all. Someone is worthy to undo that scroll and pull those seals off. And the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is all under the sovereignty of God. He will clean up the mess and deal with evil once and for all. And that, friends, should give us great comfort today as well. I know we live in Canada where it's, you know, it's so nice here. I mean, what a wonderful place to live. Even if we drive down south, it's, it's still pretty nice there. But, you know, it's, it's a little more tense, I suppose, in the United States. But North American culture, to a large degree compared to the rest of the world, you know, we have it pretty good here. Uh, we have it pretty good. So we don't necessarily think of ourselves in the same way that these people in Revelation do. But you go around the world, you go to places in the world where, I mean, if, a, if Christians meet together uh, and it's known, thrown in jail, executed, families killed, uh, this is happening more and more now in the last hundred years than it has in 20 centuries. So we have to look at the world as a whole and not just our little narrow box here uh, in Canada and the U.S. But the great reality for us to understand is that God will ultimately solve that problem. How can he be holy on the one hand, all-powerful, and yet all-loving? All do, do, you, do you catch the drift? So that's Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 6. Goodness. I think we read almost three chapters today. 